p.m. friends and welcome to the Metacast brought to you by Navic. My name is Nico and today is another special episode. Last week, you already heard me say this, but this is the second time we do this. Um, yeah, it's another torch passing. So as you might know, I'm stepping away from hosting the Crypto Corners and we have two absolutely fantastic hosts taking over. So we had Nico Vori hosting an episode last week and now we have a new one, which is Alex Takei. Welcome, Alex. Hello, how are you? I'm fantastic. This is this is is mixed feelings, right? Because you know, I there's like hosting the Crypto Corners meant a lot for me. Had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I, by the way, mo- some of you longtime listeners will recognize Alex because she was already on because she did a breakdown of Gods Unchained and came on the episode with um, the game director. I'm uh, blanking on his Chris name. Chris Clay. Chris Clay. It's a good yeah. name. Yeah, all the way from. Uh, Anyway, so yeah. All right. So maybe let's uh, yeah let's talk a bit about you uh, about you, Alex. Who are you? Yeah, sure. Um, hello, audience. Um, I know I'm a new voice for you, uh, but yeah, I'm one of the two heir parents to to Nico. Um, unfortunately, my name is not Nico, like the other Nico. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I uh, so defying the the protocol there. Um, I began my career uh, in games right out of undergrad at Blizzard on Overwatch, which feels good to really. Overwatch 1, which feels really good to say now, given the launch of Overwatch 2 last week. Um, played several roles in economy, revenue strategy, business model, studio finance, across the Blizzard portfolio on Hearthstone, Diablo 4, Heroes, and StarCraft. I did some wheeling and dealing on the Activision Blizzard partnerships team for a while before joining an indie studio called System Era Softworks. If you haven't heard of them, they're an X343 studio building a space exploration game called Astroneer. And then now I'm currently at Stanford getting my MBA at the GSB. Exciting. And so you're you're trying to balance the podcasting with an MBA, yep. which is kind of tough. Yes. Um, definitely had to make some room in the schedule uh, for podcasting, recording sessions and prep time. But I think it'll be really fun. It's a great way to stay connected to the industry and um, talk about things that I like. So fantastic. Fantastic. Good. Third question for you, Alex. What's your favorite game? Mm. Okay, so I think I think I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna cheat and give you two answers. I'm gonna tell you about the game that's probably had the most impact on my life, and then I'll share a game that I've recently played in the past like year or two that I found to be particularly profound. The game that's had the most impact on my life is probably Kingdom Hearts. I started playing Kingdom Hearts when I was like maybe 10 or 12. Um, it has had a lot of um, influence on the kinds of genres and animes that I've been attracted to and like to watch as a viewer. Um, it's also been pretty influential on the kind of combat that I like to engage in, which is that kind of heavy hack and slash, um, like twitchier gameplay. So things like Devil May Cry or... Um, uh, what else is there? Um, uh, Bayonetta, stuff like that. So the Kingdom Hearts franchise had a really big impact on um, you know, my childhood. And I've played almost all the games except for that mobile one called like Kingdom Hearts Kai. Recently, uh, I've been really impressed by Disco Elysium, which is just a pen and paper RPG. Um, it's sort of grounded in French existentialism. And there's not a lot of combat. You're mostly just scroll texting. But it's a fascinating story and unfolds in a myriad of different ways depending on the type of kit that you choose and the actions and behavior 
that you um, decide to take as the detective. Uh, it's a pretty cool game. Um, it's actually built by nar- a narrative writer as opposed to an initial game designer. It's built by a studio called Zom Studios. So if anybody's interested in pen and paper RPGs, you should check that out. I love that. And what I also love is that how different it is from first what I would choose and also what Nico chose for his game. Um, for him, what did it Nico was, choose? He chose a, um, a football management simulator. I think it's called foot, <laughs> football manager. Exactly. So, which I think is really good, right? Different, different uh, aspects. I think you guys are very complimentary. So, um, yeah, love that. And what I also like about you, uh, is that you're, you're, I guess, less, Red builds about Web3 than I am. So you're definitely <laughs> going to be one of the more critical voices uh, here. Yeah, potentially less red pill. Um, yeah. I think cautiously optimistic is how I would position my opinions on Web3 and gaming. I think that's uh, probably the best way to uh, to host a podcast like this. Um, so great. And then finally, um, given that you're cautiously optimistic, could you also give us a bold prediction about Web3 and games? Yeah, so I think that this prediction is anchored in reason and so is somewhat bold, but backed by rationale. I think that in the next five to eight years, a lot of the idle and incremental games, so like resource farmers, clicker games, etc., will all be on chain and their logic also might be all, all on chain. I think one of the biggest pushbacks from at least the AAA world for Web3 games is there's just a lot of disruption when you have something on chain because you're constantly approving transactions in some sort of other interface. And I think for the games that are less immersive to start with, um, they may lend themselves better to being entirely on chain. And therefore that audience is already, I guess, accustomed to not necessarily being immersed in this like world narrative and this world design. Um, so that's my kind of bold theory is that a lot of uh, clicker games, auto battlers, resource farmers will be on chain in the next five to eight years, as long as the chain speeds get, you know, can, can handle it and that can handle that kind of transaction volume and that logic. Got it. Big if. Does make sense, but I can definitely see if a world where that doesn't happen at all. So bold enough. Love it. Good. <laughs> well, um, it was well great, you know, passing the torch to you. I look very much forward to hearing you and your voice and the you know enlightening discussions you will have on this podcast. Um, yeah, thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. It's a uh, thank you for spending a year of your time, year or more probably, uh, hosting the Crypto Corner. I'm very used to having you be in my ear, in the car, and in my headphones. So you will definitely be missed. Um, but I will be tuning into the work that you continue to do on FogDAO as well. So podcasting is not over for you. It's true. That's true. That's where I will uh, continue my journey. Good. And with that, I would say uh, future Alex, take it away. Okay. Thanks. All right. GM friends, welcome to another session of the Metacast Crypto Corner brought to you by Novik. Um, I'm a new voice for you guys, one of two heir apparents to Nico, Alexandra Takei, but you can call me Takei for short. And today we're talking about one of my favorite questions. Are we pro-crypto and games or are we anti-crypto and games? And I'm joined by two people I have great admiration for. First, Ethan Levy, the crypto kid and podcast host of Tokenomics and Deconstructor of Fun, who is building his own Web3 studio as we speak 
and Tim Morton, founder and CEO of Frost Giant, whom I worked with on the StarCraft franchise back in the Blizzard day. We also have a surprise guest, the original Nico, who after one week of not hosting the Crypto Corner is having second thoughts, clearly, and major FOMO and has decided to join us in, in this philosophical sojourn. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Alex. Hello. All right. So before we kick it off, um, maybe some intros would be good. I'm going to go first since no one listening has any idea who I am. I began my career in games right out of undergrad at Blizzard on Overwatch 1, which feels freaking good to say now that Overwatch 2's came out last week. God bless the servers, man. Um, played several economy, revenue strategy, business model, and studio finance roles across the Blizzard portfolio on Hearthstone, Diablo 4, Heroes, and StarCraft. I did some wheeling and dealing on the Activision Partnerships team for a while before joining an indie studio called System Era Softworks, working on a sandbox survival game called Astroneer. I'm currently at Stanford getting my MBA at the GSB. I also spent some time this summer at Bitcraft um, on Web2 and Web3 investments. Nico, is there anything else they should they should know about me? That you're a good host, but uh, you'll prove yourself. So. <laughs> all right, cool. Um, all right, so before we start going down the rabbit hole on the existential question of to crypto or to not crypto, I think it might behoove us to briefly recap what blockchain gaming means and the intended value proposition it has. So, should 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 we also introduce ourselves? Yes, absolutely. Go. Okay, I, I can go first. <laughs> so, if it, this is not the first time listening to the Metacast Crypto Corner, you might recognize my voice. My name is Nico. Um, my main job is I'm an investor at Bitcraft, where I focus on the intersection of Web three and games, um, and so that's. What excites me, I regrettably do not have a background in the games industry, which is held against me more than once or has been held against me more than once. Um, but I have some experience in the crypto space, uh, building businesses there. Um, and so that, that's a bit of my angle. And an interesting bit of context. I just came back from a, a conference, gaming conference here in Belgium. I had a very similar panel discussion where I was at. And I asked the audience two questions. First, who of you owns an NFT? And I think about one third raised their hand. And then I asked, who of you will never own an NFT? And half the room raised their hands. So I think this is top of mind for a lot of people. And um, I think uh, this is going to be an amazing discussion. Tim, you want to go? Sure, I'll, I'll go next. Uh, so I'm Tim Morton. I'm uh, the co-founder of Frost Giant Studios, which is a startup located in Southern California uh, that Bitcraft led the seed round for. So thank you, Bitcraft. Uh, we are comprised of a whole bunch of former Blizzard developers and now also developers from another of a uh, number of other companies who have come together to build a new real-time strategy game for PC. And uh, yeah, I guess the relevance for me is just that we have uh, a number of different investors, including Bitcraft, who are involved in blockchain and crypto. Uh, at various points, every single one of them has come to us and asked us for our thoughts on the space, uh, admittedly with a bias from their part around encouraging us to get involved in the space. And so you know, we had to do a bit of a deep dive to understand uh, what can these technologies really do for players? Um, and uh, I think that's maybe a question that's not asked enough. So I'm eager to, to get into the discussion around that. Uh, but yeah, very excited to be here. And, and uh, thanks, Alex, for inviting me to participate. So. Of course. We're ready to hear the PC hardcore gaming 
perspective. So, <laughs> Ethan. Uh, hi, I'm um, Ethan Levy. Uh, I am currently in stealth mode, uh, founding my own Web3 game studio. Uh, I've been designing and producing games for about 20 years. Uh, at this point, worked on over 80 ship titles. My specialty is uh, game monetization, being a the designer who understands and, and advocates for where you make money. So kind of half mixing design, marketing, product management. <clears throat> I, um, you know, my, my most notable uh, contributions are probably as executive producer of Tetris franchise at network for a couple of years, did, did a couple different SKUs, including a, a number one uh, Apple arcade game called Tetris Beat. I was the lead designer on a game called Legendary Game Heroes, uh, where I worked with a really great team, a lot of great collaborators. And, you know, that game, um, the public figure from 2019 is that game has done uh, over uh, 250 million in, in in-app purchases, uh, still going live, you know, over six years. So quite a bit more since then. Uh, but I left uh, Network at the beginning of the year uh, to, to do something new. And uh, if you recognize my voice, it's probably being the uh, crypto kid and being told to <laughs> shut the fuck up on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast or, you know, interviewing Nico on uh, Tokenomics, which uh, he came on in a really uh, great episode just the other week. Yeah. As Cress says, I'm going to drop this podcast in and because you're defending your honor against mm -hmm. Web for Web3 for Valor. Um, yeah. But thank you guys for, for joining us. Um, and then we'll kind of kick it off here. And so going back to sort of the, the state of play for blockchain, right? Um, you know, in the 1990s, you know, Raph Koster, Star Long, and Richard Garriott and a team of others released the first major MMORPG, Ultima Online. Uh, this year is the game's 25th anniversary. I was barely alive then, but I like to respect our elders and what they've done for, for bringing games into the, into the world so that I can work on them and have a vocation. But video games have been monetizing in creative ways for over two decades via elaborate in-game economies, selling digital items, utility assets, via many set virtual currencies. And thus, in a way, for me, video games are actually the birthplace for digital currency, aka internet money. And in some sense, Web3 economies, which are just open economies built on the blockchain with virtual currencies, are merely just the decentralization and expansion of something that already existed. And so I think the value proposition from the blockchain side for Web3 gaming is the four following core ideas. One, true digital asset ownership. Expand the purview of ownership from, you know, my account at Riot owns this to me, Alex Takei, owns this on the internet everywhere. Two, interoperability. The idea that digital assets can be used in many worlds, not just video games, or that at least I can sell these assets for coin and use other coin to go buy different assets in different worlds. Three, governance, so community-driven decision-making. And then four, the concept of a thousand fans. You know, this idea that you can save many businesses from the perils and unprofitability that are typically concomitant with low user numbers. And so our question for this discussion is, A, is the proposed ideological value going to actually be true once we obstacle course our way through the technical challenges? And then B, is there a market of consumers and or players that actually care about these values with a profit margin that warrants the investment that we've poured into this space and see, is this actually the right thing to do for players in terms of bringing them value in the entertainment experience? So I think that's kind of the lay of the land. Um, let me know if I missed anything, but from with that, I think maybe we just kick it off with volleys, each side sort of lobs a grenade 
I can kick us off. Tim, if you want to lead off of that, um, disagree, agree, et cetera. Yeah, I guess um, I, I hadn't heard your four pillars before. Um, so I think those are thought provoking. It might be interesting just to talk about each of those. Uh, I have opinions and, uh, you know, be happy to, to talk through them. But, I, you know, I think the let's even just take the first two. I mean, you kind of talked about digital ownership separate from a central authority. And you talked about portability of goods between uh, programs, I guess, is, is maybe the, the best way to put it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really, um, I think ownership is something we've been able to do through a central authority for a long time. Um, I think, uh, you know, we talked briefly before the podcast started about all of these other mediums, books, music, uh, video entertainment, film, uh, that similarly had ownership, uh, but have moved more towards licensed models where we're all using Kindle, we're all using Spotify, we're all using uh, Netflix, and Amazon streaming. Um, you know, I think as consumers, we certainly recognize the value of uh, having in past days, been able to loan a DVD or a book to a friend, and we kind of lament that loss. And yet, we are all—I I suspect every single person uh, who's on this podcast, and, and probably most of the folks who are listening—subscribers of those services uh, or equivalent services. So, I, I would argue that we have already voted uh, in all of these other mediums, and uh, that games, certainly with Game Pass, uh, are also moving in a similar direction. Uh, I think most of us consume our games digitally now. Anyhow, like physical goods are largely a thing of the past. Uh, yeah, I I won't disagree about the uh, you know value of being able to loan things to others, but but I think we've all moved on. Uh, so I, I'm curious to hear how you three feel about that. Well, um, I think the thing, you know, something that comes to mind, because and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong uh, on what you're doing with with Frost Giant, but it it seems like you're building premium titles, um, probably not within app purchases. Like good old days, you buy a thing and then you buy some DLC for it. Is that an accurate representation of of what you're doing? Uh, I uh, I guess. I, or of what's publicly known about what you're doing. I'm, oh, correct no worries. We, we've talked a, a lot about this as well. So S StarCraft II actually went free-to-play in 2017. And so Frost Giant's going to follow a very similar model um, where the client itself is free. A certain amount of content uh, is consumable for free. But as players find types of content that they like, there's an opportunity for them to purchase more of that type of content. Okay, got it. So I was I was mistaken there. Yeah, I, I apologize because the the reason I asked was, um, you know, if if you if if one is pursuing a premium strategy, and is um, aware of how important Game Pass and PlayStation Plus are to the consoles and how they're making these giant. Um, acquisitions to to bolster their own media libraries they move more towards this Netflix type model um, I think uh, entrepreneurs like us are going to have a really hard time building venture scale businesses 
if the end purchaser is Microsoft, Activision, and anyone else who's doing a, a Netflix of games, right? Like, I think as content creators, we might be able to make really amazing, great content on the right budget for the opportunity. Um, but I don't think those will be VC scaled businesses, right? So they might just be businesses to- that I'd love to work at but not ones that I think Bitcraft is going to fund. For so just just to jump in on that, though, yeah. I, I I mean, uh, Internet cafes or Internet game rooms, IGRs, um, have been a component of uh, the games business for many years. And so they're, they're a very similar model in that they're effectively uh, consumer expectation in that setting is to come in and have access to content. Um, Obviously, free-to-play microtransactions have been a thing for a while. So I, I think what you're describing is a solved problem. Um, what we do in those circumstances and what we're planning to do if we're ever part of a service like Game Pass is to provide an initial bundle of content that you get access to by nature of the subscription uh, and still provide you the opportunity to microtransact past that baseline. Um, and so that's still a very viable business. It's proven. It's a model we used at Blizzard uh, for many years. And uh, it's still, to your point, uh, it has the potential to grow to a scale that's interesting to venture capital. Right. So, you know, a- Alex had her four points on on why, on kind of her crypto games hypothesis. Actually, no, almost none of those are my points for crypto game hypothesis. Like, uh, the inter- I? I think... A- <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those are, are pretty utopian, and that's not why I believe in the opportunity, right? Like, I uh, I know how hard it will be for a, a character or a unit that I made in my game to appear in Tim's game, right? Like, either Tim has had to pre-produce uh, a standard that I choose to follow so that my asset could possibly appear in his game, or I make my asset and it has to be so popular that other developers decide to do the bespoke work to allow that asset to be imported into the game, right? Like the interoperability thing is um, of the seamless Ready Player One metaverse is um, such a big, difficult, intractable problem to solve. that, And I don't think that's necessarily what gamers want. Um, what I do think people want is to own their stuff and to be able to profit from it. Right. And, and I think that what they also want is to not be work, uh, uh, investing their time, money, and energy into economies that the game developer then, uh, ruins in the, in order to force them to buy new things, which is a pretty common free to play tactic. Right. Um, if you play any game, uh, any popular free-to-play mobile game that has a, a power-based economy, not a cosmetics-based economy, which is a lot of them, uh, for as much as we like to talk about Fortnite and Apex, like there's oh, a no. lot of games out there that just sell power I think uh, lost in it. one form or another. And as a player, it kind of um, it really stinks when I buy something because it's the best thing in the game, or I open hundred gotchas to get something, and then six weeks later, um, the developer releases something that makes that that hero or weapon or whatever inconsequential and to force me to buy new things. So um, what I think, I think that there's a very long road to get there. Um, And I know, you know, the pedigree of the frost giant 
developers. I've played many of the games that they've worked on. I literally have the manuals in, in my tiny room and I loved them and, and still love them. And I expect a great game out of Frost Giant that'll be super fun to play and that people will love and, and will give them all the warm feelies of, of StarCraft II and all the Blizzard pedigree games. If I had a game that was as good, as easy to play, and as frictionless as that game will be to, to get into as a new player who doesn't know anything about blockchain, and in Frost Giant's game, I could spend money to get units, um, but I have no ability to sell those units to other players or trade them to other players. And then there's an equivalent game where I do own those units and I do have the ability to sell them to other people or trade them to other people, just like I do with my magic cards or my Pokemon cards. Why would I choose the game um, where I don't own the assets, where the developer faces no penalty if they power creep my stuff out of existence instead of ruining their own royalty revenue when players leave the game. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a long road to the point where these things uh, can compete in terms of quality and friction. Um, but when we get there, um, why wouldn't I want to own the things, you know, games I've worked on, people spend hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars on IAP, right? Why so would they choose a game where they could spend that money and not own their things versus one where after they're done playing with their toys, they can sell them to somebody else and recoup 70% of what they spent on them. Yeah. So I, I mean, basically what you're bringing up is item trading. Um, item trading is something that's been possible in games. Yep. Item trading and sales. It, it's been possible uh, in games for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. And there are games that are designed around it and that do support it. And there are games that aren't. And the reality is consumers have been able to make the vote that you just described between those two types of games for a very long time. Uh, CSGO, item trading, uh, you know, Valorant is doing just fine. Uh, it's, it's not the case that one of these is inherently superior to the other. They're just different. And uh, will there be games that enable that with and without blockchain? Sure, absolutely. Does that revolutionize the industry? No, nah, it's not even new. Uh, is my opinion. <laughs> but if I may jump if I may jump in there, I think Ethan's also pointing to something different. I think first he's also talking one he's taking about it's true the developer makes the game, but the beauty of League and WoW and StarCraft is that it's the community that fills the world that the developer makes, right? And so there's obviously a bunch of consumers there that have invested a lot of their time, basically capital and labor, right? Um, in the production function into your game, right? And Ethan's kind of saying that it's like wouldn't it doesn't it not seem more appropriate that they would be able to be compensated for that and not only have free trading amongst that universe but capital flows in and out right i think that's the difference this, right this in is CSGO, coming sure you're in one world trading in one world right um and if you don't have to trap or trick the player into staying and locking up their capital in that one game and you instead just have to build a great experience then you have to actually then you actually have an alignment of incentives such that the developer has to just keep on building a great experience because they know that if they don't build a great experience, everybody will just take their capital, tokenize it, and move it out, right? And I think that's actually a very unique proposition versus something like Hearthstone, which has all my wild warrior cards that I cannot do anything with, right? I don't think any of us are picking our games 
on the criteria of capitalizing them. We're picking our games to be entertained. We are literally paying for entertainment value. And I think the hypothesis that I'm hearing from you guys is, yeah, okay, it's about entertainment, but what if I could take my capital out? And again, I go back to there are games that have made this possible for a long time without blockchain, and it wasn't revolutionary. Consumers didn't flock to those games because of it. I think consumers like it, but it's incidental. Consumers play games to get entertained, and consumers will continue to pick games on the strength of what brings them the most entertainment. And this hypothesis that if we make it about money, it's going to be even better, I reject. I don't think that's true. So I, I, I don't... Um... I wouldn't necessarily say better as much as may given marketing advantage that allows someone on the blockchain side to uh, outgrow uh, someone on the non-blockchain side, right? Like to me, it's just, it's really just about marketing, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you've been at Blizzard for a very long time and Blizzard has pedigree. Blizzard doesn't really need to do user acquisition the way others of us in the industry have. Blizzard gets all its games covered by everybody all the time for free, right? You've been in rarefied air. You haven't been in a world where you need to uh, worry about the 180-day payback uh, window and LTV of your ads that ran on Apps Flyer yesterday, right, in order to make your revenue flow. You're about to be there. And luckily, you have that incredible pedigree that'll bring a lot of attention to your game. But if I figure out a business model that let me advertise a similar game to the tune of $50 million a month every month, uh, and you were coasting off of, we used to work on Blizzard and we're reviving StarCraft 2, I'm going to be able to make a lot more players aware of my game. So and that be- means it's just like, I'm just going to, it's a marketing advantage in my opinion. And, and, and one other thing I'd say is that um, my hypothesis is that anywhere there's a gray market, it uh, points out a big consumer demand and need. And so an example of this might be before there was Netflix, uh, me and everyone my age used to download movies on uh, uh, uTorrent, Right. Uh, and, and other similar torrent services and steal all our music on Napster and that tanked the revenues in the industry, that gray market and caused, uh, created the opportunity for the, uh, Netflixes, the Amazon Prime videos, the Spotify's of the world. So if people have been selling accounts and selling gold in World of Warcraft in a gray market for years, uh, one response is to say, well, that's something that's against our policies are, are EULA and we need to clamp down on that and, and kill those gray markets and punish those people. But on the other side, it, it tells me there's an opportunity to completely disrupt the business model because if people are selling accounts, that means uh, that means there's a real demand for the purchasing of items to save time. So right. yeah, I, I'm going to work in reverse order here. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I, mean, I know that was, yeah. that was a bunch of different no worries. Um, I, I mean, there's a gray market for stolen cars, too. It doesn't mean there's a great disruptive opportunity there. There's yes, there a is. reason why. There's, there's, uh, there's something the like Uber, where you can call a car on your phone instantly. And there's a vision, like, if I could just rent a car from Tesla 
seamlessly, I would not be spending $50,000 on a car if my costs right. were lower to only rent so, it on demand. So let me rephrase. I, I think the actual opportunity from the stolen IP, uh, which is uh, what you're describing with downloading illegally content that others have created, is a rental market. And I think we're seeing that rental market emerge. I don't think we need blockchain for rental. I, I, I want to talk about the WOW example because people bring this up a lot. There is no reason over the last two decades that uh, we couldn't have enabled account sales in WoW, uh, we choose not to for design reasons. And just like the Diablo Auction House, uh, enabling players to skip gameplay, enabling players to pay to win are things as game creators that we don't want to do consciously. But this isn't about blockchain. This is about a design decision that we make as game makers. Now, there are other games that make different decisions. And those, again, without blockchain have been out there for a long time. But you're not giving me a new option here with blockchain. This is technology that we've had for a very long time. Um, and, and last one, just, just to jump in. So I, I actually only spent about five and a half years at Blizzard. I, I did a bunch of my career at startups and, and at other so, places. So I, I'm, I, I I'm very much, no, no, no worries. But I, I bring it up just because I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the, uh, especially sitting where I'm sitting today, to the need to reach users and to appeal to users. But I really sincerely believe that the way we do that isn't about the finances in this business. It's about how much entertainment value we're bringing them. And, and I think that's where our headspace has to be. We have to make a viable business out of it. I'm totally with you there. Um, you know, Bitcraft's not going to back us otherwise. But, uh, but making a viable business, to me, really means thinking about how do we bring more joy to consumers? Like, like that is the bottom line of our job. Yeah, so I'll, 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 I, my, uh, my belief is that the financialization of gaming will actually broaden the market and bring a level of heightened emotion that I experience naturally and is the reason why gaming is my number one hobby and I spend thousands of dollars a year buying games and hardware and other uh, uh, spend, you know, countless hours reading articles on IGN and Kotaku, like I'm in the, I'm in the core, I'm in the hardcore. Um, but there are millions of people who aren't right. And uh, these people will, you know, to me, something like a fantasy league for football or betting, uh, doing squares in the Super Bowl. Um these are things you could look at it as like, oh, it's gambling and it just ruins the sport for people. It's it's dumb uh, or like it doesn't you know, it doesn't do anything for the sport. To me, as a game designer, adding that element of uh, financial stakes heightens the emotions and makes many matches, which I may have absolutely no context or care about, gives me a reason to care and experience joy and emotional ups and downs along the way. Um, so I think financialization of games um, through uh, blockchain, through player ownership of assets and tokens gives people who aren't currently hardcore gamers a lot of things to be excited about and kind of juices the experience in a way that might, um, you know, people are as excited about today's Digidaigaku marketing announcements as they are about a new character trailer release in Overwatch, right? It's a different, it's a different audience, but like people totally. are super jazzed about it. 
Yeah, and and I'm a, I'm going to agree with you here. Uh, and it is uh, I, there is an audience for gambling. Uh, basically, I mean, what what we're talking about is I I can gamble on the future value of an asset. Like there there are a lot of ways that blockchain can be used to empower gambling, and gambling brings joy. Uh, it's a completely different set of motivations from the kind of joy that we try to bring as game creators. And so I, I again, talking to Alex uh, previously, like slot machines are a thing. And, and there is a whole audience that loves the you know Pavlovian possibility of getting a reward for pulling this handle or pressing this button these days. Um, and it's a market. It's a very lucrative market. Um, and I think Web3 could empower gambling and games in, in much the same way that slot machines exist as a separate market from the kind of games that we build. But if your motive is to make money, slot machines are the place to go. If your motive is to get joy from entertainment, um, traditional games are the way to go. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, well, I guess using that definition, do you, would you call opening a Magic the Gathering booster pack gambling? Right. I wouldn't consider that gambling, but do you? I, I mean, I guess ask Belgium, but, uh, you know, there are there are a variety of opinions on this. I, I think it's arguable both ways. Um, loot boxes, gotcha mechanics. Um, I, I think they are widely being perceived as gambling at this point. So I I, well, I, dis- well, I mean, I, I, dis- I disagree. I, I think I disagree. <laughs> there is a there is a lot of journalism uh, and loud voices on the Internet uh, that consider it gambling or say it's gambling. But I mean, I've actually worked a lot in exploring the definition uh, in many countries around the world of what makes something a skill-based game for money versus gambling. And these there's there's an important distinction there. And so, you know, opening, opening a gotcha pack is not gambling in most jurisdictions, whether it's digital or physical. And yeah, I don't it, think it meets, I think, I, I I mean, the reason I'm, it's actually kind of important if you're working on blockchain to be very clear that like, I'm not making gambling games and I'm not making games for the purposes of speculation. I believe that when players own the assets in the games that I make, uh, it will force me as the creator to make better choices that are in their best interests. It will give me a reason to market them and bring them to my game. And it's not about speculation. It's not about um, gambling. That's not why I'm here. And I don't believe that's what uh, I'll be doing with with the games I'm designing. Yeah, but I I guess when we say own assets, we should probably double click because, uh, you know, when you conduct a transaction with a traditional game developer um, to get an asset in their game, you know, I I would contend that you do own that asset, and uh, the only utility of that asset is in that game. Uh, I think we we both agree that portability across games is kind of a, a false uh, hope that's being held up by Web three. It's not real. I don't think it's going to be real for anything besides simple cosmetics. Um, so really, what we're talking about is an item that has use in one ecosystem. And so if you have bought it in the Blizzard terms, if you've got the entitlement for that digital item, um, it's yours to do with as you please within that game. And if we decide that trading is a good thing, as briefly was the case in Diablo, uh, 
that'll be possible if if we decide that that undermines the game and takes away from the joy, causes play to win mechanics, etc. Uh, maybe it's not possible, but um, you know that's going to be on us as game makers to um, to decide, and and that's for good reason. But, but I would argue that the value is not only in that game if you have a tokenized economy and you can get paid for being excellent at what you do, right? I think there are tons of potentials for there are best players in WoW and in order to get paid for playing WoW or to see some sort of benefit of my, you know, maxed out Warlock, right? Blizzard has all of that. I can't give my legendary Warlock that won this PvP tournament to somebody else. I can't but get paid reason- for being good. Right. Yeah, the reason you can't is because it undermines the game experience. So if we design a game like CSGO where item trading makes sense, then you can. Um, and in the circumstances where you can, whether blockchain is there or not is incidental, like it's an enabling technology. But I, I come back to, we've been able to create the opportunity for players to trade items and, and even for players to take money out of that ecosystem for a very long time. We don't need blockchain to do it. Um, it, it has not been revolutionary to games. There are games that use it uh, and there are use cases for it, but it's it's an option that we have as, as game makers. It's not something that fundamentally changes the fabric of the landscape of games. Can I uh, quickly, well, not quickly actually, from what I've heard until now in the discussion, we focused the conversation around first monetization and then later ownership and resellability. And it was all centered around the fact that NFTs or crypto-based assets are like something you can sell and that have value. Tim, have you thought about non-financial use cases to build better games with blockchain technology? So like DAOs, for example? As one example, yes. Yeah, I, I, I actually, um, I think they're really fascinating. And, and again, uh, like, don't need blockchain to power them. I think it's about accumulating influence and how that influence gets exerted, uh, particularly in things like guild management. Uh, you know, I, I can think of all kinds of interesting uh, sort of community influence driven mechanics. Uh, so, so have thought about it a bit. Um, I think to me, it is one of the more interesting potential applications. Um, I do come back to, I, I think the use cases for it are somewhat narrow. They're there, uh, but I, I do think the use cases are somewhat narrow. What I what I notice, sorry Tim, to interrupt you, but what I notice with a lot of very experienced game developers, um, I had a discussion with with uh, Rami Ismail today. He's a very well, he's a well-known indie developer, and he tends to look at blockchain technology with the glasses of what games do I know and what games do I know will benefit from this technology. And what I'm trying to do as a, as a venture capital investor is I'm trying to talk, well, I'm, I'm speaking to teams and I'm looking for teams building games that would not be possible without this technology. And so I think this is, this is very hard, right? It's, it's hard to think about something that, that doesn't exist yet. It's, it's, it's the, the, the principle of innovation. Um, and so I guess my perspective here, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Tim, is that I see blockchain and Web3 more broadly as a toolbox with a bunch of things in there, including a very flexible way to do monetization, a way to offer your layers ownership, but also other things, right? The concept of, you know, the moment you own something on a blockchain, um, actually the developer can actually stop you from trading it 
So you can have an NFT that is that you can't sell, which takes away the speculative speculation asset. But you have proof that you own this in a decentralized database, which makes it so that I can start building a club of people that own a certain item within the game, right? And it facilitates all of that um, and could lead to, to new experiences that we, we couldn't see before. Yeah, no, I, I love that you bring this up because from a developer perspective, I look at under the covers, what does blockchain really empower? And it mm-hmm. empowers decentralized trading with lower friction cash outs. I mean, that that's kind of what the tech does. The decentralized part as a game developer doesn't really have value to me. Like we can solve what blockchain does with the database. The lower friction cash out, um, I, I, you know, there are some use cases where uh, maybe that's interesting. Um, we've had the ability to cash players out. Uh, you know, Tapalti is a system we used at Blizzard to pay out players. You look at uh, UGC systems, user-generated content systems like Mod.io and Overwolf today that are uh, facilitating cash outs for players on their content. Like these, these are all things we've been able to do for a while. Um, I, I kind of come back to um, what what are the new things that this empowers? How does this change my toolkit um, to design games? And it's it's not that revolutionary. I hate let to me, say it. I, let me tell you why I think that's a very short-sighted argument to make. Okay. Right? I feel like you're saying, you know, we've had the ability to rent cars short-term for years. And if I need a car to for a couple of days, I can go to Hertz. And if I need it for 20 minutes, I can call this thing called a taxi company and a car will show up at my door and take me to a place. There's nothing revolutionary about Uber. It is not doing anything I'm not capable of doing right now. Therefore, it will not change the world. And the thing that I would say is just because something isn't uh, revolutionary in terms of new capabilities doesn't mean it won't change the world, right? Like that's, that's kind of the argument I feel like you're making being on the other side of it. Cool. And, I, I mean, show I me the that, show me the Uber use case, and, I, and I'm all all ears. Like as a game maker, if if that's there, I I want to see it. But like you know, prepaid taxis on your phone, the low friction was revolutionary. Um, so cool. Like you you guys tell me what that is, and I'm all ears. I I keep asking this question to every blockchain person that I meet, and I I still haven't heard it. I still haven't heard the revolutionary thing that's going to make me as a game maker the re- go. The revolutionary thing, the revolutionary thing, I'll tell you. And uh, in 10 years, we'll see if I'm right or not. The revolutionary thing is that normal people believe that they own digital assets. That is the most important and only thing of value that blockchain tech brings. Belief. Belief among normal people. I know normal people here in South Carolina who don't read VentureBeat, who bought into NBA Top Shot because they believed that they owned a digital card. And that belief was what gave them the confidence to spend their money and invest and collect and then resell those things. So that's that's where I believe that's the revolution is consumer I, belief. I want to go back to what Nico opened with, and uh, it, it's very resonant with me. You talk about belief. Belief implies that there is a massive audience out there that believes this, and they don't. I, I mean, I will tell you from my personal experience that our player base is not saying, Frost Giant, give us NFTs. They're saying, keep NFTs out of our game. Uh, and those 50% of hands that went up with Nico 
are, are telling of that exact same phenomenon. Consumers yeah, are I, not asking I've, for this. I've lived through this all before. This is exactly what it was 12 years ago when I started getting into free to play. And you said it yourself, Starcraft 2 went free to play. Free to play though. So I, this is a, like I, I hear this me. brought up. People Hang hated on, me. They hated free to play. Journalists told me to go to hell. Game developers told me to go to hell. And this gamers such... told me to go to hell. And guess what? Call of Duty is making more money on free to play than it is on its box products. Here's free the difference. Free to play has revolutionized though. everything. Here, here's the difference. This is like the go-to for blockchain advocates. There was this other thing that consumers didn't like and it worked out. But let's look at that other thing that consumers didn't like. What it actually did was take away payment as a barrier for players to play games. Like there's clear evident value to players in that the clear evident value here doesn't exist like we we've been talking for this whole time and i still don't understand free to play i think the hardcore tribal gamers one which i consider myself right they hated it and that is most journalists most game developers most people who play console and pc games yeah, but you but know what? I agree. People with that. who play right. Candy Crush and spend a billion dollars in a year in it every year for ten years don't give a fuck about PlayStation versus Xbox or any of these other things that the people who write for Kotaku and read Kotaku care about. The gaming business is so much bigger than people who play console games or people who play LOL or people who play WoW. I, yeah. I mean, if so, I, I first off, I'll say I agree. Like, I think it was the core audience that didn't believe in free to play, um, and there are reasons why they didn't. It's because free-to-play was designed initially around frustration mechanics, and we figured out how to move past that. But I, I think in making this analogy, what you're trying to imply is that there's this massive unheard audience that's saying, we want NFTs. And I just like look at the NFT trading graphs, and I, I think you have um, your Let me answer. say another thing. It's not that I think there's a massive unheard audience. I think that there is a business potential that will allow blockchain game developers to outmarket and make more aware and bring more people to their games than to, you know, what is currently traditional gaming. But so we've already established. Okay, go ahead. May may push back on the idea that there's no indication of demand, right? I think we always go back to that same Henry Ford phrase. You know, if you'd ask people what they wanted, then they would have said a faster horse, right? They don't know necessarily the value that potentially digital ownership might have. They're rejecting it because nobody likes change. It's a fundamental human condition, right? Right. And I think it's not just only about belief, but it's also about trust, right? I think it's belief that I own this thing, but it's also trust in the protocol such that, you know, Twitch right now just changed the developer creator payouts from 70, 30 for the top 20, 10% um, uh, creators to 50, 50, right? And I think when you make a contract with a studio, I think many gamers um, have felt betrayed in the past. And I think the anger that people feel towards studios, right? It's a very passionate community is actually an indication that they want more say and want more control over what happens to the products, right? Now you may disagree with whether or not that's okay. I think this is going to the point of like the welfare state, right? Are you a designer and therefore you know better than the players or do the players have an opportunity to actually influence the game design and the game direction, right? But I think that it's more just about, it's more than just about belief. Um, It's about trust too. Yeah, I, I think you made two points there, and I want to talk about both of them. The, the first one is the implication that somehow blockchain changes the dynamics of a platform holder to uh, be able to set their own terms on the platform. It doesn't. If I'm a platform holder, I'm going to control the terms on my platform. Like That's the way platforms work. So the Twitch example doesn't 
make sense to me. Uh, the the first point though about people not knowing what they want, absolutely. Um, but all that saying is what I keep hearing from blockchain advocates, which is we don't know what this is really going to revolutionize, but someday it's going to happen, and uh, and we'll all look back and say, wow, this was really cool tech. I, I'm prepared for there to be something cool that comes out of this, but I'm still asking the question of what is it? Like free to play, getting to play a game for free, totally get it. That makes sense. Uh, blockchain, it's a slow decentralized distributed database whose transactions can't easily be reversed um, that doesn't really provide anything new in terms of functionality for a game creator. Um, I, I'm just not seeing what's what's the revolutionary thing that's going to come out of that. And I, I mean, I think the assertion that we just got to is, well, people have faith in it or people believe in it. And I'm, I'm not meeting those people. Those people are the people who are in the blockchain industry attesting that something great is going to come out of this but the average person on the street i don't i don't think they're asking for this can i uh then pitch you something absolutely so you've you've dug into what the blockchain does at a basis level right you just mentioned that the blockchain is a database but ethereum if you look up like the original original idea of ethereum is that it's the world computer right and so actually you can program that database and you can actually run programs on it and so what I'm seeing today is that some people are saying, hey, what if we, instead of building a server to run our game, what if we use this blockchain to run our game? What if we build, write a bunch of smaller contracts that together build, constitute a game and start experimenting with that? Because that means that suddenly the game lives forever. As long as the Ethereum blockchain is alive, the games that are built on there are alive and are, are operational. Um, it means that anyone can interact with the game permissionlessly. Anyone can build on top of the game permissionlessly. Anyone can take pieces of the game and use it in their own game. No one can stop them. Um, is that something that you would consider something you, we, can all, we can already do? Or is it something that you would consider useless and, and stupid effort? Uh, I, th I think the problems surrounding that kind of development are huge. Like with, without doing a, a real deconstruction of the implications of, of what you're describing. But, um, I, I, you know, I, it makes me want to go back to talk about Web 1.0. Uh, you know, there was this vision of Web 1.0 where everybody's got a computer. Uh, they can spin up a web page on that computer and, you know, we'll just have this amazing uh, world where everybody is able to share stuff from their own PCs. And, um, you know, you look at what actually happened and it wound up getting centralized uh, because there were a lot of benefits to hosting from the same place. Um, there were a lot of benefits to standardizing on the technologies that we use to power those web pages and the interactivity on those web pages. Um, I, you know, the reality is Web 1.0 started decentralized and it moved centralized. Um, and I, I think what you're describing now, um, I, I think there are a lot of cool concepts there. And I've talked to some other game developers, interestingly, not using blockchain, but uh, who are empowering the kind of thing that you're talking about, but doing it in a centralized way. Um, and I think there are some very interesting use cases there for MMOs, for example. Um, and I think developers will absolutely do that, but I think they'll, they'll do it in a centralized way. And I think 
for speed reasons uh, and for efficiency reasons, they probably won't use blockchain to back it up. Maybe some will, uh, but but anyhow, it's it is a really cool uh, concept, and it and it is something that I see people kind of actively exploring today with and without blockchain. Yeah, I think one of the challenges. Nika, with that is that we pay on the developer side massive server costs that are completely hidden to the player. And every single player, free or paid, incurs meaningful costs to us. And if you're talking about developing in a serverless environment where all server side work happens on the blockchain, that actually turns it more into an arcade where people have to, in some fashion, put those server costs in up front in order to run that thing. And like, I mean, I've, I have had the experience of going to pay for something with a credit card at that rare store that says, uh, credit card fees are passed on to the user instead of eating them like most stores do. And I pull out cash. And so like, again, to user friction, if I could play one MMO that was free and one that was an equivalent experience, but I had to pay for all my server costs, uh, wh- why would I pay for all my server costs, right? There's, I would say there's there's ways to to abstract it away. We've also seen in, in the Web3 space, people are willing to pay quite a bit of money for, you know, true ownership. And I think having ownership of an asset of which the game actually lives on chain cannot be shut down, I guess, gives another additional level of, of true ownership, right? Um, and then I guess my final point would be when it comes to like transaction and speed, so I was always critical of this, but I've now with my own eyes seen two different blockchain-based solutions built on bi- different blockchains where literal Minecraft was happening on the blockchain, where every time you, you can mine like the block, like you could in mine, uh, Minecraft, that was a transaction on the blockchain. Um, and so this was quite recent. This is all very early still, um, but I think um, that's something I'm, I'm keeping my eyes on. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think uh, this, this comes back to... Uh, the potential for something cool to come out of all of this, and and I'm I'm with you guys in that uh, we we don't know the answer yet. Uh, it it does like I I hate to be the the skeptic in all of this, but but that's my role on this episode, so I'm going to do it. But <laughs> it, it it kind of uh, just underscores though the solution looking for a problem part. Like we we haven't actually figured out what is the compelling problem for players that this is going to solve um and is it possible that we'll come up with something yes totally it's possible but it's also possible we won't um so i so, guess we'll see so tim i, yeah, I have I, a question I, oh sorry go ahead ethan i mean it's just it it um it feels to me i again like i'm a rare game designer in that I spent 10 years designing games and then I spent the next 10 years focusing on the business models of those games, right? And so to, to me, it when I hear, Tim, these arguments and, and I've heard them f- from many people before uh, and will for, for many years until I'm, uh, unless and until I'm able to prove it wrong with my own games, but I feel like it's people looking at Farmville and saying, uh, well, this is never going to be better than what Call of Duty always give, already gives me. I'm only ever going to buy a $60 box of Call of Duty. And I hate it that they've now started 
taking things that I used to buy for 60 bucks and selling them to me on top of it. Like it's, I think the business model's power to change everything about what games are made and funded and why is extremely profound. And, and the reason I founded a, 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 or am in the process of starting a Web3 startup is because I believe this new business model is going to eat the entire free-to-play business, which by revenue is the largest segment of all gaming right now. So everything that's currently free-to-play, everything that's an IAP that people don't own, you know, my prediction is that within 15 years, the majority of it will be NFTs. And uh, uh, because of the benefits that owning that asset and being able to sell it to someone else will be. That doesn't mean that, that all game assets are going to the moon. Most of them are going to be worthless. The same way that like when I went home, most of the baseball cards that were in my uh, room were worthless. All of the Marvel trading cards were worthless. The Marvel overpower cards were worthless. The only thing that had any value were the magic cards that I stupidly sold like 10 years ago. Right. I wish I still had all those unlimited cards, but I think that um, uh, we have a thing which is very large by revenue, um, which is in-app purchases. Uh, and I think this is a better way to do in-app purchases because uh, I can, uh, because now there's competition, right? The price isn't only what the game developer wants to sell it for, but if somebody else is willing to sell me something they already bought for cheaper than what the game developer wants to sell it to me for, you know, through gotcha or battle pass or whatever obfuscation mechanic they have. Yeah, I, I was going to ask the question of what is the new business model, but I, I think hearing you talk just now, your answer is uh, it's in-app purchases, but I can sell my stuff outside the game. And and I go back to the CSGO example. I go back to others. Like this this has existed and it did revolutionize the industry. It's um, the, the new business or the importance of the business model is um, that the royalty rate from secondary sales will be more important to game companies than their primary sales. And yeah. what's interesting yeah. about that, so like w when you work on a gotcha game, um, I uh, the, the developer needs to find a new reason to make people buy new things in gotcha this week. And that normally means making last week's things that we just sold less useful in the game. Uh, and it's and and this is uh, something that's very common in in, in uh, games that don't have a purely cosmetic um, economy. And so, in a world where uh, your revenue comes from royalties, and if you devalue the things that players own, like in a way they can measure, if they owned a sword that was worth fifty thousand dollars and now it's worth five thousand dollars there's going to be a mass exodus and an economic crash in your game. And that's actually, I think, a positive, not a negative for the game industry as a whole, that it will align uh, valuing, uh, it'll align the player's incentives with the developer's incentives and force us on the developer side and the product management side to make better, more long-term, more player-focused uh, decisions than what um, many of us experience when we're working within companies that are VC funded and going for a big exit or a big listing, right? 
Yeah, I, I think there are uh, some obvious flaws with with that example in that presuming this sword that we're paying money for uh, has gameplay impact, it's pretty important for game designers to be able to balance their games without backlash from their players because of the economic impact, but because the right thing to do for the game is to balance the object. I mean, I can see all kinds of detrimental outcomes from what you're describing, but but I want to rewind to the point where you said you believe the royalties from secondary sales of items is going to become so significant to game publishers, game developers, uh, that that becomes our primary business. I, I just don't see evidence for that in any of the ecosystems around item trading that exist today. I, I think as developers, we would have to come up with some kind of game design that so motivated secondary item trading that that became a meaningful portion of the business. And that's that's just not a mainstream design. Maybe there's a game it, that well, I guess I'm that. not a but it's not. game that's, designer. I think, that's, I think that's the idea, though. So, so Eli's right. putting The on. idea is that I'm trying to revolutionize game design. So like, right, but I have you're an trying answer to, for you, but I'm not going to talk about it in public. But, but here's the thing. Here, here's here's a, a super important aspect of what we're talking about. You're trying to create financial incentives. And those financial incentives are a completely different goal from entertainment incentives. And in, in fact, in many cases, creating systems, let's look at Axie, uh, that are about financial incentives, specifically motivate unenjoyable gameplay to inflate value and to justify value. And just like a slot machine is all about extracting monetary value, but the game isn't very fun, that's exactly where this heads. And so I think it'll be a category, I'm with you, but is it going to revolutionize what I do? Absolutely not. I, I, I don't think anybody uh, who is at a mainstream, large game developer or publisher is going to consider this their core business. I think they're going to consider this a secondary business like slot machines. I, I, I agree that maybe that, that that's true. But I think when you bring up the Axie example, I think that there are actually some pretty cool financial nudges that you can install as a game designer because right from my from my understanding game designers are masters of human psychology right and they're masters at I, nudging i don't know if they're all masters of human the psychology. best ones they like be. to imagine they are or like they like sure <laughs> let, let's just let's just let's just throw them a bone they're the masters of human let's, psychology let's, let's say game designers attempt to manipulate your emotions professionally to create Correct. a thing that we call joy sure Right. And potentially, why is financial incentive not a part of that lever, right? You have narrative, you have like, you know, like visceral reactions to, you know, gritty combat, right? You know, the animation of, you know, Kratos's axe and God of War, right? But I think that the financial incentive could be an interesting thing and an interesting emotion to sort of play with, in my opinion, right? So let's just take the Axie example, right? Their economy suffers from sort of some sort of obviously massive inflationary problems, right? That's a flaw with the initial design of the economy, right? But perhaps there's actually some very cool way that you can include narrative, for example, like in, goodness, I forget, I think it's called Lunasia is the land of the axes, right? Every three months in Lunasia, there's a catastrophic meteor that wipes out half the axie population, all NFTs gone, right? And I think that's a very interesting thing, right? When we think about something like a Hunger Games, where we, we want to watch people play through real danger and real, um, real like potential for loss, I think it will change players' behavior more than we think, right? And so I think there's actually an opportunity when you have financial incentives for it to be a lever to drive player behavior, which could lead to new types of genres. Now, is it going to become this mainstream thing, right, where 
you know, all of Call of Duty is going to be operating the blockchain. I'm, I'm not sure. But I think that there is an indication that people actually like to play the economy game. Like if you look at an economy like Crypto Unicorns, people are having a very good kick out of figuring out the exchange rates between, you know, unicorn coin and uh, tether and figuring out whether or not now is the right time to harvest their carrots or not so i think that it's um you know there's something there's there's fun to be had there is kind of what i'm trying to say yeah i i mean absolutely there's fun to be had i i mean are day traders gamers yeah i guess arguably they are um the stock market's a great game um so can that game exist yes uh, is it what I'm going to make as a game maker who's focused on entertainment value? Absolutely not. Uh, these are different things. Um, and I, you know, I'm not an economist, but if if we get into all of the aspects of play to earn or play and earn or whatever uh, the fashionable thing to call it today is, um, I, I mean, fundamentally these are closed economies where for every winner there has to be a loser, and uh, it, you know. Financial loss is not a thing that brings joy. Uh, I, I think the other challenge with these is that unlike the stock market where uh, it makes sense that there can be an open-ended increase in value and an open-ended growth, all game populations peak and decline. Like this is the way of things. And so as soon as a population declines, like the economy also has to decline. I just... I, yeah, this is this is at odds with what I do. Uh, this is not this is not building games. This is something else. It's the stock market. You know, to me, well, the the thing about like um, no mainstream game developer is going to get on board, right? Uh, Twelve years ago, within Activision Blizzard or other EA or other publishers, you probably could have at least started a pitch, if not gotten a product greenlit prototype for a new premium uh, RTS with DLC, uh, uh, you know, using the heritage of either StarCraft, WarCraft, or Command and Conquer. Uh, And nowadays, you absolutely could not, and you guys are making a free-to-play game, right? Because the uh, investors and central studios and the people whose job it is to mine the stock price uh, care about uh, making money and making the stock price go up. And so they control the purse strings and they no longer uh, fund the old type of media. Or if they do, you know, if you were to make one of those games nowadays, it would be with a significantly lower budget and it would probably be because Sony or Microsoft are prepaying for it, right? You're making a free-to-play game now. So like, I think that the same forces that over time make it that you're making a free to play game and not a premium PC game with DLC, you know, it's my prediction that the same forces will change from the investment layer on down the types of games we're able to make a decade from now. Yeah, I guess I'll, uh, so I love that you used RTS as an example. Thank you. Bless you. And, uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I think uh, that the real backstory of the journey with this product was sort of less about the free-to-play part and just about uh, size of market. I, I think historically, RTS games, uh, whatever business model they use, whether it's premium or free-to-play, 
you know, the total lifetime value of a game might approach half a billion um, versus, you know, a shooter or an ARPG or an MMO uh, where it's a billion plus. And so having pitched RTS, new RTS games, both premium and free to play uh, within big publishers and got shut down. It was kind of about that calculus of what they expected the lifetime value to be. I think going out to venture, uh, and thank you again, Bitcraft, uh, you know, has, uh, it, there's more appetite for risk there. And I think they're willing to give us a chance to prove that we can exceed that, that lifetime value. But, but I think your core, uh, you know, your core point was new business models uh, can change dynamics and uh, in, the market and and I totally agree with you there. I think I'm still struggling to just understand the the revolutionary part of of this business model. Um, items that can be sold like that's that's a thing we've had pre blockchain and it, it just wasn't yeah. revolutionary. Yeah, I get it. And, and and you know, just from from where I am, it's not something I can convince you of in an interview. The only way for me to convince you of it is within the next five years to have a game that does a billion dollars a year in royalty revenue, right? If I, if, if Ethan Co. incepts a game that does a billion dollars a year or more in royal, secondary royalty revenue on NFTs, you know, the Nikos of the world are going to be chasing after that the Activision blizzards of the world are going to be buying those studios and forcing internal developers to take on that new business model over their cries, moans, uh, friction, hatred for it. And eventually we'll get to Genshin Impact and Call of Duty Mobile, but for blockchain, like that's, that's, that's going to happen. But it's, I'm, I'm fully aware, like it's, I can't convince you of this in an argument. Uh, and, and I could maybe change your mind if I was willing to show you some game design and spreadsheets, um, that I won't air publicly, but I even, I, I know that even if I showed that to you, you would probably say, this is some interesting game design. Good, good <laughs> luck. I look forward to seeing where it nets out, right? Like the, the only way to change minds is, is with, um, with, uh, uh, you know, action. And, Fair. uh, it's, it's kind of my, my spider sense or, or the bet that I'm taking with my career at this junction is that um, Axie Infinity's rise and fall told us something really interesting about the power of this business model to attract attention. Um, and that is what I'm betting on, right? And, and for what it's worth, uh, I'm genuinely rooting for your success here too. <laughs> Thank like you. I, please, uh, please take that away. From no, this, but, this has yeah. been, this is a great, well-intentioned, friendly debate on all sides. Absolutely. Right. Like I think this is, uh, this is what public discourse uh, should be when, when people disagree. Right. Totally. And what I also think, um, you know, Tim, you're obviously representing like the, 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 the PC base of the West, right. When you talk to, you know, I was talking to a classmate of mine from the Philippines, right. And he was telling us the story about Axie Infinity. And he was like, this is actually crazy, right? Like with this type of vehicle, we've actually made people who would never consider themselves gamers to become gamers. And, you know, I think for some people, they need a different kind of nudge to get into something. And potentially blockchain is a way to expand the gaming demographic, right? I think there are even people who play mobile games or whatever don't consider themselves gamers when in reality, like going to the action of learning a system and getting better at it is a game, right? And I think that for 
you know, for, for blockchain in, in maybe different parts of the world, it's being seen extremely differently than, than it is in the West because that entertainment value is there for them. They find the, the potential to, to earn and be paid if they're good, to be um, valuable and more important than being told an incredible story or to play through, you know, an incredibly deep combat system, right? Like that's the thing that drives them, right? So when we think about player cohorting and we, you know, we do this all the time in Hearthstone and Heroes, like the rank standard player versus like the, the casual player, there could be a space for a financial incentivized player in a balanced ecosystem where somebody is playing for fun and the others are playing for monetary gain. And what ratio that is, I don't know, you know, there's a, you know, in mobile, there's a, it's a whale business mostly, right? You have five, 10% whales, 90% freeloaders, right? Maybe that's the same situation, right? Where you have, the, you know, you the, uh, the five, five, 10% payers, payers, uh, payers, sorry, payers. Well, yes. no, just because like, it, I, I don't really like the term whales, but whales are not all payers. Whales are a small percentage of a small percentage, percentage of pay, payers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm saying that there's, I think there's potential for that. So I, I guess I want to be careful analogizing blockchain uh, with financial incentive for playing games, because I, I think it's got a lot of applications. And of course, uh, there are ways to pay players without blockchain for, for playing games. But but I think the core question you're asking is, if, if we create financial incentive for players to play games, um, is that a good thing? Um, it could be. I, I think part of the... Uh, challenge there is to come up with financial incentives that don't cause others financial harm um, and also to come up with financial incentives that are sustainable and that don't fall apart when a game's popularity starts to go down um, and are those solvable problems i'm not an economist so i can't say definitively that they're not but they they do seem like pretty big problems like blockchain or no blockchain if we're going to pay people to play games it feels like we've got to solve those and and i mean i think that goes back to your entertainment like i i, I didn't get into game design to get rich i got into it because i love video games and i'm an entertainer and i love entertaining people and so like i think that um everybody profits is not the goal, uh, nor is it possible, right? The The goal is to uh, make something people love, give people their new hobby and their new community. Uh, and I don't, I don't think um, there's no such thing as a perpetual never ending economy. I think like to me, the gold standard is Magic the Gathering, right? Something that's well-managed, that grows in popularity um, over time, uh, that has a collectible element to it, and that collectible element to it adds uh, depth for some people, and other people don't care about it. Like that—that that I think is kind of the best you can do with the digital economy. If if I told people that I could make a digital currency and a token that will only ever go up in value and that won't have will only have winners and no losers, I would be uh, uh, an idiot. Right. But I think the, the thing I would say or the, the analogy I use is like professional basketball or football or any, any sport. Right. Many people spend many hours with basketball as their primary hobby or one of the hobbies in their suite of hobbies in their life. They spend a lot of time and money and they get a lot of enjoyment out of it. A very small percentage of the people involved in the many aspects of the sport of basketball make a living. And an even smaller percentage are rock stars, right? And, and by make a living, I'm talking about like people who work concessions 
at a basketball stadium. That is someone who is involved in the basketball economy. And, and it's, you know, it's not the goal that everybody involved in the hobby of basketball is as rich as LeBron James, but the idea that some people can become LeBron is part of what brings attention and uh, interest to the sport. Yeah, and I, I think the magic example is a great one to highlight that um, there are types of games where collectability and trading are successfully and inherently woven into the fabric of the game. And I think blockchain is a choice those games could make. Again, you could do that stuff without blockchain, but blockchain is a choice those games could make. So, you know, I think there will be examples. Um, you know, there's some developers working on a game that's essentially uh, Tarkov with goods that you can trade and sell. Um, you know, I, I, I can think of places where blockchain or no blockchain um, item trading for money could be interesting. I, I don't think it moves the whole industry there. Um, I don't think it takes over. Um, but I, I, I think there are examples of games uh, that could benefit from uh, from that. And again, they might still do it with a central database, but blockchain's a choice they could make. You know, it would be a cool follow-up discussion. A topic or an episode called Why Not the Blockchain? Because right now we're trying to prove why blockchain makes sense for certain applications. And you're always saying like, uh, it doesn't need the blockchain. Um, but I think fair argument would be that, you know, blockchain, although, you know, a year ago it was expensive, right? The cost of using the blockchain are going down tremendously. And so at, at a certain point, even if it's a marginal benefit, the cost actually is worth it. Yeah, it's an interesting, I, I, I love the why not the blockchain idea. Uh, how much time <laughs> have we got? We got 20 minutes. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think um, I could I could lob some things out and, and see what you guys say. Um, I I think the customer service experience around uh, transactions that cannot be reversed or around transactions that are very difficult to reverse is terrible, um, and it opens things up to scamming in a way that is so damaging to user experience. But even without the scamming, I mean, on a daily basis at Blizzard, I, I can't even tell you how many support calls came in from people who their kid made a transaction that they didn't want made, or they misclicked, or they had misgivings about the, like, to not be able to unwind that stuff, wow. I mean, that's a, that's a problem. Um, I, and I maybe there's an answer to that, but I, I'm curious, um, how, how you guys feel about that or if you have thoughts. Um, so I think this is, um, it's both a, a curse and a blessing, right? I, I used to work in the payments industry. Um, and if you as a merchant accept a credit card payment, there's some high fees because transactions can be reversed. And so for a lot of merchants, you know, they, they were happy that there's irre irreversible transactions because of that, the trans transaction fee that they have to pay um, because Visa or, or any credit card providers often in incurs the risk um, is way lower. And so I think um, for me, the blockchain is this programmable database where we can program the transfer value. And so all like for now, we have decided that the any blockchain transaction is immutable and irreversible. Um, but 
that doesn't mean that we cannot find solutions around this where you know payments or transactions go into some kind of escrow or you can you know have accounts that have a limited balance that cannot transact more than certain amounts and so for me the cool thing about the blockchain is that we can all together work to build a solution for the problems that you describe right you know if i make something that actually works then if you're building a game you can actually include that in your game as well and into your payment system um and so for me i agree that today this is not ready to be used by you know the hundreds of millions of players um but the foundation is there to make it way more user friendly than whatever ways to transact value we have today yeah this one scares me just because you know it, it's so inherent to the ideology of blockchain uh, that these transactions are immutable uh, it it feels sort of directly contradictory to the ability to unwind transactions and and unwinding transactions uh, you know it, it's absolutely a thing um, commercially that we have to do uh, I don't know I I I'm with you that if a solution comes around, it's cool that it's deployed globally. Um, but I, this one does feel inherently yeah. challenging. I, I think, I mean, the most likely um, solution is going to be a competition to be the primary platform or sales place that has the best customer service, right? So, you know, all these vinyl records behind me, I, I bought on Discogs and on eBay. And it, you know, I'm making an an independent purchase through a platform with a stranger in another country or another city. And uh, if I, you know, once I give them the money, I can't, if they don't send me the thing, the transaction isn't reversed, right? What happens is the platform eats the cost and compensates me. And they do that because that's part of the cost of doing business to be the best option for auctions, for peer-to-peer -peer auctions. Right. So I can imagine a, a, an equivalent a solution like why might Magic Eden or Aqua overtake OpenSea in the long term? Maybe if they have better customer service and this is part of the um, a solution around it or another thing, you know, you, you uh, one could imagine a, a something like a sales that happen with an escrow with a cool down, you know, like a reapproval of sale 48 hours afterwards that you could opt into. You know, I, I could imagine something like that. I don't think I would take, take part in that necessarily, but I could see it being an experiment worth running. Uh, but mostly I, I think that um, there might be a winning marketplace. And part of what makes it the winning marketplace is uh, having lower profit margins because of being willing to compensate uh, people for um, transactions they regret or that they claim that their children made. Yeah, I guess it gets uglier when it comes to fraud, though. I think, uh, you know, what we saw happen with Axie, um, you know, though we can argue that uh, they should have been more secure, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, there are always going to be bad actors out there looking for vulnerabilities and not having the ability to unwind that kind of stuff. I, it's are a credit you, to are them. Are you talking about the bridge hack? Yeah. The bridge I, social engineering hack? It, it's a credit to them <laughs> that they weathered the losses that they did. But um, I mean, a lot of businesses that that would have been the end of the road. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, again, like that's no different than or that's similar to the many class action lawsuits and um, uh, 
data privacy hacks. And like, I mean, I feel like every other week I get some stupid letter where I'm going to get four cents because GE was forced to pay $500 million to a billion people because of a light bulb I bought 18 years ago or some stuff like that. Like, you know, it's not like fraud doesn't happen in, I mean, I I do agree that the fraud and the lack of security and the, like, that the social engineering hack of the Axie bridge would be like someone stealing $600 million from JP Morgan's uh, balance sheet, right? Like that's, that's the type of thing we don't see uh, in the modern world. Or if we, if it happens, we don't know about it. Um, But uh, it used to happen, you know, before banks were what they were today. So. Yeah. But I, I guess I would argue that, uh, like un- until there is a way to unwind fraud, um, and, and this goes back to these transactions effectively being immutable, though to be fair, I think some of that money has been recovered. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars went to uh, a hostile nation trying to build nukes to reach our shores. Like, um, you know, I think if traditional financial transactions had been used, there would be protections against that and more ability for us both both to trace those transactions and to unwind them. Uh, the immutable nature of blockchain means that a fair chunk of that money that was taken, in fact, landed in North Korea. This is kind of fundamental to blockchain. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I believe you guys that maybe somebody will come up with solutions for these down the road, but like today, it kind of suggests that this tech is not ready for prime time. Yeah, I mean, I my I think I've said on on a, a previous podcast, like I think the long term solution is going to be that every bridge is going to be forced to buy an insurance product, and that insurance product will be the thing that compensates. Like, I don't think there's going to be loss prevention or recovery. It's just going to be that every single uh, validator network is going to be in a position where they buy insurance from AIG and then AIG has priced it ideally such that they make a profit but have enough money to uh, make uh, investors and companies and end users whole when there are these giant hacks. Like that's the direction I think the world's going in, which is basically- But so we just landed back exactly where traditional- transactions are in that there's a tax that we pay to cover the possibility of fraud. Um, So I think we just neutralized one of the reasons why to use blockchain. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, I, um, I'm, I basically saying, uh, I, I agree with you that all of these problems are true problems and the solution to them is going to look just as crappy as it is with traditional financial products and running businesses and services. I, uh, I'm a unique, uh, person on on the Web three side, and that I'm not a degen, and I'm not a utopian. Like I have a very specific use case uh, for gaming entertainment products that I think blockchain is amazing at, right? And the rest of the other stuff, um, that's not me. I'm not a crypto native person, right? I haven't been reading the uh, Ethereum white paper since whenever, whenever, right? That's uh. Fair Nico, did you yeah. hear that? Market opportunity. There's a gap. You need an AIG of blockchain. I, that's a that's a problem space. I can't remember Invest if there. I said that before on your podcast. Or you did, Ethan. And I and yeah. I told you, or you told me that your roots are actually perfect to build a business like that. So once <laughs> inevitably your blockchain game fails because you know we don't we know now that it doesn't make sense at all. You can, you can go into that. Yeah. 
Um, right. That's that's where I'm going to end up. Blockchain <laughs> insurance salesman. Boom. That'll be hey. the, that'll be a dramatic downfall from Good someone who just wanted to make any games. <laughs> but to, to be fair, I want to go back to uh, something Ethan said in there, which is. Uh, you know that there's a very specific use case that you're thinking about um, and, yeah. and just like the magic example like i i actually do believe those use cases exist and i think blockchain's a, a choice that developers could make for those use cases so uh so i i don't think you're destined to fail by any means right. uh, it's more we're we're kind of arguing about the scope of business more than anything yep, yeah. yep. um and so on that note, I know that guys were running running up on time, but we wanted to close out our discussion with one of um, Novik's, you know, signature or Nico's rather signature questions um, on asking for bold predictions. So I know that we kind of hashed this out. Tim, your opinions have been clearly made known. Ethan as well. Um, but if you guys could just go through and maybe say like, what is your boldest prediction that reflects your optimist or pessimistic stance when it comes to crypto? Think about like, you know, for the pessimist stance, the darkest day or optimistically, Ethan, you know, you're telling me that your, your game's going to have a 1 billion in secondary royalties. Sort of what is Tim, what's your most pessimistic stance in terms of boldest prediction of what happens if games and crypto, crypto gaming becomes like a thing? Oh, uh, Wait, let me make sure I understood the question. Am I painting a dystopian world? Is that what you're saying? I yeah. see. Uh, if you want to, that's the. All right. Uh, yeah, I can do it. I, I, uh, I'm going to preface this by saying I, I think my my real opinion is um, I, I think the game industry will continue as it has and be just fine. And I think there will be some games that use crypto that wind up being good games, but I don't think it's transformational um, and that a lot of the capital that's poured in uh, was disproportionate to the opportunity. So so that's my, my real opinion. But uh, the dystopian world is uh, blockchain gaming takes over and everything is about creating financial incentives for players to play games and we effectively degenerate to uh, building slot machines that are just about uh, the Pavlovian money response rather than actually building good games. That's that's the dystopian outcome, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's see. My, um, my prediction is that by the start of 2024, we will see a new crypto games bull market on the back of great games, great crypto games that are being built right now by the people who have the belief in it to stick with it despite crypto winter uh and we'll see great games that are great that are also great businesses start to emerge by the end of next year and that will cause a rally and resurgence and renewed interest in crypto gaming so build now join me <laughs> build now join me and build now <laughs> So Ethan wants more. Com Ethan, Ethan wants more competitors. It, it seems like. Um, so um, you know, again, I, I thank you guys is so all, much. I view us as all pushing the same rock up a hill, and then once mm. we get near the top, we can start shoving each other off the top, <laughs> yeah. off the top of the mountain. Right. Let's right. all oh, it's, get it's, the rock up there, right, right, and then right. we can pull out the sharp elbows. I mean, you might be right. And in the beginning of the internet, it was all cooperation. Let's build this glorious thing, and then it was capitalism. So that is potentially what may happen. Um, but in the case, again, that you do want to be like Ethan and build now, this is, again, Ethan Levy. Um, you can <laughs> get in touch with him uh, via 
Where? LinkedIn. You can join the Deconstructor Fun Slack group and, and message me as Alex has and uh, listen to the podcast. I'm I'm a very internet person nowadays. Um, gotcha. And if you want to uh, align yourself with the guardian of traditional PC gaming um, and you want to get in touch with Tim, you can find him. Uh, let's see. F- uh, Frostgiant.com uh, is our, our main website. I'm also on LinkedIn, I guess. Can I wish list uh, your debut game yet anywhere? Please, yeah. That is, uh, you can wish list Stormgate on uh, Steam, and there's also a beta sign up page at playstormgate.com. Awesome. Awesome. And then Nico will be able to find you in a DAO, Fog DAO. Correct. In the future, with your tokenized economy for podcast creators. So if you'd like to get in touch with Nico, you can find at him. Nico Vreke at Nico on Twitter. I'm also hanging out on LinkedIn. Um, and you also find me kicking Ethan's ass in Stormgates when the beta's up. <laughs> I've never been good at RTSs. I was a me weird neither. <laughs> turtle player. Yeah, me neither. Me neither, man. I just man. wasn't very good, but I do miss LAN parties. Oh, well, goodness. This one's for you guys because it's got co-op against AI. So you don't even have to fight each other. You can just Perfect. fight AI. Tim, if guess. someone tells me that I need to create more pylons, like, I'm out. I'm out, man. <laughs> like, I'm out. Like, there's just no chance. Okay. <laughs> don't take it. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This was awesome. Um, and with that, we're, we're out. We're out.